0: We're covering a lot of verses this morning, Um, so we're going to do, this is actually a two-part lesson, okay, that we're going to do all at once, so if you're taking notes, uh, the title of the lesson is The Gifts God Gives to Believers, The Gifts God Gives to Believers, so the first part of the lesson, part one, and you can write part one, is the gifts, the giving of gifts. The giving of gifts. So when this, uh, remember Ephesians this is broken down into first par- two parts, the first three chapters, uh, Paul was laying the groundwork of understanding, knowledge, doctrine, theology. He's given the groundwork and then in the final four chapters, he gives more application. He's kind of informing them and instructing the Ephesians how they are to live, how they are to walk, what they are to do. And he starts out in chapter four, verse one, talking about unity. And we're not gonna recap uh, the four verses, uh, the few verses, six verses that were covered before, but in verse three, it says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this chapter starts out and it's talking about the unity of, Of the body of Christ and the importance of that he's talking about the structure of that how it works what it's for and how it's grounded um, because it goes on and it says uh, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in the hope of your calling one Lord one faith one baptism uh, one God and Father over all who is uh, father of all who is over all and through all and in all so he's putting the body of christ together then we come to chapter uh, four verse seven and he says but anytime a word like that is used it's like hey stop down i'm going to change direction i'm going to give you additional information or build on what i just said Um, so part one of this lesson again there's two parts so part one is the giving of gifts a Is the gifts of Christ to individual believers the gifts of Christ to individual believers verse 7 says but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift so he stops down and he's talking about the unity of the body of believers but he wants to amplify this he wants to give additional instruction and the first thing that he shares under the, talking about the gifts of Christ to individual believers is number one, it is personal. The gift that he gives is personal. It's not congregational, it's not by group. Whenever God gives us this gift that he's talking about, it is personal. He changes and he talks about not just uniformity. Uh, or a group as a whole, the unity of the body of believers, uh, unity is not uniformity. uh, And it's perfectly consistent with the diversity of gifts. God's gracious relationship to all is also a personal relationship to each one. It is a personal relationship to each one individual. And it is a ministry through each one. When we exercise the gifts that God gives to us, it is an exercise through us to the body. Um, So Paul moves from the unity of believers to the uniqueness of believers, talking about each one of us personally, of what he has done and what he is going to do and how he's going to do what he's going to do. So first thing, number one, is it is personal. Number two is it is not earned. When God gives gifts to us, they are not earned. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given. Grace was given. Grace is a single word definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what grace is. The gospel is the good news of God's grace to sinful mankind. That's what it is. It is It's the good news of what God has done for us because he loves us. That's what grace is. The nature of grace is giving. That's what it is. It's giving. And the Bible tells us much more about giving than getting. And we see God is constantly giving to us. God is a God of grace because he is a God who freely gives. It has nothing to do with anything that we have done or anything that we failed to do. It can only be received. That's all that grace is. God is gracious because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we are. It has nothing to do with us. His grace is therefore unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. We do not deserve God's grace. We don't deserve his outpouring of love towards us. We did nothing to merit it we did nothing to earn it, we did nothing to deserve it, and it's not that, we, uh, not that we did something and it also isn't that we didn't do something. Like, oh, I was supposed to turn right and I turned left, Oh, but if you turned right, I guess I should be going like this. If I turned right instead of left, well then, oh, I would have earned it. No, there's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to earn God's grace. It depends entirely Grace uh, depends entirely on the one who gives it. It's completely up to God, not on the one who receives it. Grace is God's self-motivated, self-generated, sovereign act of giving. That's what God's grace is. So, number one, it's personal. Number two, it is not earned. And number three, it is a gift of himself. It is a gift of himself. It says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God's grace has another dimension that we tend to not talk about. And as I was studying through this passage, I was like, wow, that's a really incredible concept that I just don't think about. I had not thought about this a lot. The fact that God's grace uh, is therefore God's self-donation of himself to us that's part of what God's grace is he not only gives blessings to men we tend to think about that part of grace of giving blessings because who doesn't want to be blessed who doesn't want to receive blessings we know that we receive salvation and that's an amazing blessing and grace that God is pouring out on us but he also gives of himself to us This is infinitely more important and precious than any blessing God gives. It's the gift of himself. That's what he does. Um, It's a staggering truth of the gospel that the holy God of the universe has given himself to sinful mankind. The holy God and creator of the entire universe has given himself in the form of Jesus Christ to you and to me individually. That's an amazing concept and an amazing thought. And it just create thinking about the work of salvation that Jesus Christ did, it just makes it all the more amazing. God grants us his salvation, his kingdom, his inheritance, his spirit, his throne, his wisdom, his love, his power, his peace, his glory, and every other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places according to ephesians 1 3. that's what he has done for us individually that's part of what grace is it's a gift of himself but far more than all those blessings he blesses us with his personal presence we get the personal presence of jesus christ in the form of the holy spirit indwelling us as a believer God owes nothing to sinful men except judgment for their sin. That's all that we deserve. That is it. Nothing more, nothing less. That is what we deserve. Yet he does not, uh, he does not owe men the smallest blessing in favor. Yet in his grace, he has given us all the blessings, blessing of all blessings, the immeasurable blessing of an intimate shared life with him. That's what he gives to us. There's an example that you can think about that kind of creates this in our minds a little bit. Uh, Most of you in high school are not married, I assume. You're all single. Now there are some married people in here, me being one of them. Um, When you think about marriage, when you choose a partner, when you choose a marriage partner um, with whom you plan to spend the rest of your life with, uh, rest of life in marriage, we are careful to pick someone who is worthy of the self-giving that marriage demands. You're picky. You want to pick who you want to marry. And you're gonna be picky because you're going to be giving everything to that person. That person is the one above all others whom we will give our love, our time, our thoughts, our devotion, our loyalty, our resources, everything to. In short, we give all that we have in marriage. And we choose who we're gonna marry based on the merits that they have of I want to do these things for them. That is not what God does when he loves us. When he chooses to love us, he chooses to love us not based on the merit that we have, that he's going to give all these things and what he's going to get in return and that he's going to that's going to be a reciprocal relationship and he's going to give and they're going to give and hey I'm going to clean the bathroom this week and you clean it next week and you know you vacuum and then I'll vacuum and I'll take the dog out for to walk and which I don't do because we don't have a dog but it's a reciprocal relationship and you're helping each other and you're taking care of each other god does it to, for us despite anything that we are or do because we have nothing to give, which is an amazing aspect of God's grace to us. That's what he does. When God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1:4, he did so out of pure grace and not for anything that he saw in us that made us worthy of that choice. It says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. It was because of his amazing love for us that he did these things. All God can see in the world when he looks at us is sin. That's all that we are, that we are sinful people. But yet he wanted to redeem a sinful people to himself through his son. The son also gave himself, emptied himself of his own glory so that he might offer glory to fallen men and giving his own life that spiritually dead men might live. That's what he has done. That's what God's grace is in the giving of himself. Jesus was a perfect example of that in his life and the way that he walked. Throughout his entire earthly ministry, Jesus continually gave of himself to others. He gave himself to his disciples, to those that he healed, to those that he raised from the dead that he released demon, uh, from demons that he forgave their sins he gave of himself when the woman at the well at sakar he offered the water of eternal life and he was the water that he was offering i'm giving myself for you that was what he was offering second corinthians 8 9 says you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the work of grace that God did for us and that it's personal and it's something that he did for us individually. It's an amazing thing that God's grace is. So, A was the gifts of Christ to individual believers. We have it. It's personal. It's not earned. And it is a gift of himself. B is what Christ has done for us. What Christ has done for us. Hey, Edwin, I left my water back there on that. little. Do you mind bringing that to me, please? It's right there uh, to your right. There you go. Thank you. Um, Verse eight says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, thank you, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This at first is a confusing Passage, when you look at it. And I was, when I first read it, I was like, okay, I don't, maybe I'll just skip this part because this is kind of confusing. But you know what? We're not. We're going to go through it. Um, <clears throat> what Christ has done for us. Paul is getting ready to talk about some of the gifts that he gives to us as believers and the way he gives those gifts is through what Christ has done for us. So he stops down and he's gonna talk about these Christ, uh, the gifts Christ has given. But before mentioning specific gifts bestowed on the whole church, he uses Psalm 68, 18 as a comparison passage to show how Christ received the right to bestow those gifts. It's really incredible what this is. So in Psalm 68, it's a, and you don't have to turn there. It's a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate God's uh, conquest of the Jebusite city and a triumphant ascent to, uh, represented by the Ark of the Covenant uh, up Mount Zion. That's what's being talked about in Psalm 68. After a king during that time, uh, won that kind of victory, he would bring home the spoils from his conquest, his campaign, and he would have a parade and he would parade the spoils of the victory in front of all the people. He would also bring the captives, the prisoners that he had captured and parade them in front of his people showing, hey, this is our victory and look what we've done. But another thing that he would do in that parade is any of the recaptured, the soldiers, his soldiers that had been captured by the enemy that he had recaptured would be paraded in front of the people saying, look, these, we have brought them back. We have brought these captives back. They were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king and then given freedom. It's a beautiful thing to see. This is what he was referencing when he looked back at that, and it was a reference to what Jesus had done for us. So, B is what Christ has done for us. Number one, he triumphed over sin and death. He triumphed over sin and death. That phrase, when he ascended on high, depicts a triumphant Christ returning from battle on earth, back into the glory of heaven with the trophies of his great victory. He was triumphant in his return. Because of the what the life that he had lived and the the death that he had died and that way he was raised back. And it was he ascended victorious. In his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered Satan, sin and death. <clears throat> and by that great victory, he led a captive of a, a led captive a host of captives who once were prisoners. He is leading them as a victory in heaven showing, look what I have recaptured because of the work that I've done. That's what he's depicting with this example from Psalm 68. It's a vivid demonstration that God has yet unsaved people that he is still working to draw to himself. Um, Though sinners are naturally in Satan's grasp, And uh, would remain there had not Christ, by his death and resurrection, made provision to lead them into captivity of his kingdom so that they could be his sons, God's sons and daughters, and have that relationship with Jesus Christ. So, number one, he triumphed over sin and death. When it talks about he ascended, that's what it's talking about his ascension after his triumph. Number two, he gave gifts. Upon arriving in heaven, he gave gifts to men. It says that he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul here uses another term for gifts, and it's a, a different expression in the original Greek to express the comprehensiveness of his gracious provision. Like a triumphant conqueror distributing the spoils of his, uh, to his subjects, so Christ takes the trophies he has won and distributes them in his kingdom. After his ascension came all the gifts empowered by the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. He says, another is coming the greater than I. He's giving to us the Holy Spirit. When when the Savior was exalted on high, he sent the Spirit according to Acts 1-8 and with the coming of that Spirit also came the gifts to the church. He's giving these gifts because of the work that he did his, and his afterwards his ascension. That's what he's doing. Now, this is where it gets kind of confusing because I thought, how does this, when you read through that passage and it gets kind of confusing, Paul is explaining and drawing from Psalm 68 and he's talking about these recaptured captives and that's what Christ did. He's ascending triumphantly showing these recaptured captives that he has received in heaven, but then he stops down and he makes another point within that. And it's interesting because that's when he stops down and he says, uh, "Now this expression he ascended." It's like he stops down and begins to explain something. In his explaining the application of the Old Testament pa- passage, Paul says, "Now this expression he ascended. what does it mean, <coughs> except that he is also descended into the lower parts of the earth?" And that's where I was like, hey, we can just skip this part and keep going and there's a lot of verses to cover. This is so interesting. Um, I found this in MacArthur's commentary. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I heard way back when I was 16, I was listening to a pastor talk at a pastor's conference. And one of the uh, men there, we, it was a question and answer and I just distinctly remember this. I was 16 and one of the Uh, Pastors said asked of this group up there. What do you think? We're going to do in heaven and the pastor said well I wouldn't be surprised if we spend a tremendous amount of time studying God's Word Because the more you look at God's Word you see additional depth and depth and depth and depth and More depth and I know you're sitting here going I go to Countryside Bible Church it doesn't get any deeper than Tom. But I was amazed when I read this. I was like, wow, that's so cool that this is ties together. So when he says that, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. The he that Paul is talking about, is, of course, is the one who fills all things, Jesus Christ. It says he ascended refers to Jesus' ascension from earth to heaven. He ascended from earth to heaven uh, to reign with his father. Paul is quick to explain that the expression he ascended cannot mean anything except that he also descended. So what does that mean? If ascended refers to our Lord's being taken up to heaven, then descended must refer to his coming down from heaven to earth. The depth of Christ's descent in, uh, in our incarnation is said, and I'm reading this exact, is said to be into the lower parts of the earth. I never understood what that meant. What does the lower parts of the earth mean? Does that mean hell? What what does that mean? This reference is presented to provide a striking contrast in terms of its ascent far above heavens. To understand that phrase, the lower parts of the earth, and this is what was really cool, we need to examine it of where else was that exact term, original Greek, used in scripture, or original Greek or Hebrew. In Psalm 63, 9, it has to do with death being relate, uh, relating to falling by the sword, somebody dying. In Matthew 12, 40, that similar phrase was used talking about the heart of the earth and it refers to the belly of the fish that Jonah was in for three days. That's what it's talking about, descended. In Isaiah 44, 23, that same phrase was used and it, to create, uh, and it was talking about talking about created earth containing mountains and forests and trees, all of the earth. And then in Psalm 139, it is used to reference uh, the womb of a woman where God is forming the child, the depths of the earth. So that same phrase was used in all of those examples. The intent of the phrase in this letter is not to point out a specific place, but to refer to the depth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ it is interesting that each of the faith uses of the phrase outside of Ephesians can also relate to the depth of Christ's incarnation he was formed in the womb he lived on earth he was buried for three days and his death was consistent with the depths of the earth he was killed for us All of those things apply to Jesus Christ. Every use of that passage when it talks about the depths of the earth. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.18, he kind of sheds some light on this as well. It says, for he also descended in the lower parts of the earth. It says, for Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison. And when he talks about that, he's referencing, um, hold on, let me get make sure I have these in order. He's referencing that when Jesus died, where was he at and what was he doing while he was dead in the tomb? This is saying, according to 1 Peter 3.18, that he went and made proclamation to the spirits. In other words, what that's saying is between Jesus' death on Calvary and his resurrection in the tomb, uh, he was physically dead, but he was spiritually alive. And his spirit descended into the depths and he made proclamation to Satan and to all the demons, I have won, I have victory, I have defeated you, period end of statement and that's an amazing thing and the thing is is that incarnate work that Christ did he gives to you and I personally that victory that is his is our victory if you are in Christ apart from Christ you are separated eternally from him and you would be you will be in the depths of hell And you will hear him say, I have been victorious, and those that are mine are with me, ascending to heaven. That's the magnitude of salvation or lack of salvation. That's the truth. So, uh, C, our next point, A was the gifts of Christ to individual believers, B was what Christ has done for us. C is the gifts of Christ to the whole church. The gifts of Christ to the whole church. It says in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Um, So Paul continues to explain the gifts that he has given to believers. Um, Now, there's two ways you can look at this. You can look at it as, hey, these are the physical gifts that he has given of pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles. But it's also can be looked at, and I think in context, it's talking about the gifts that he has given to us as believers and the gifts that he has given are through the work of the apostles, uh, uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Those are gifts that God gives to us. Number one that he shares is apostles and prophets. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets and third teachers. That statement adds weight to the apostles and the prophets. So the first of these two classes of gifted men, apostles and prophets, what were they for what did they do okay so we're going to talk just real quickly because we don't have tons of time but i want to cover this um the work of the apostles is to really threefold number one to lay the foundation of the church that's what they did according to ephesians 2 20. number two was to receive and declare the revelation of god's word they received the revelation and they declared the revelation of god's word so these are the ones that wrote the scripture. That spoke. They, that's where God worked through the apostles and the prophets for that person, purpose. And number three, to give confirma, uh, confirmation of that word through signs and wonders and miracles. They were allowed those gifts for the purpose of confirming the truth that this was from God. That's what. That's what they were. That's where the apostles and the prophets were. Um, the basic meaning of the word apostle is simply one that is sent on a mission. Uh, it's primarily uh, and most technically a sense of apostles used in the New Testament, uh, which, only were, which included the, only the 12, Matthias, who replaced Judas, and Paul, who was uniquely set apart for the purpose of uh, evangelizing the Gentiles and of being apostle to the Gentiles. And it started with Christ, who then shared with them and then they went on to share with us. The qualifications for that apostleship have been, uh, they were ha- had to have been chosen directly by Christ and have witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Paul was the last to meet those qualifications. Uh, it is not possible, therefore, for someone to claim to be an apostle in the church today. It's not possible. Because those are the qualifications of an apostle or prophet. Um, so, God gave to you and I the gift of apostles and prophets. And through them, we have his word. We have God's scripture. This is a gift that God has given to us. Be mindful of that. So, let me, I'm going to need to speed up because we've got like 15 minutes and we haven't got to part two yet. So, uh, he gave us first the apostles and prophets. Number two, evangelists. Number two, evangelists. These are men who proclaim good news. The work of an evangelist is to preach and to explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who have not yet believed. That's what an evangelist does. He is a proclaimer of salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. That's what he does. The New Testament evangelists were missionaries and the church planners, much like uh, the apostles, but without the title and the miraculous gifts. That's what they did. Uh, who, went where Christ, uh, who went where Christ was not named and led people to faith in the Savior. We're gonna have a missionary spotlight this morning. That's what evangelists do. That's what missionaries do. They are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They are professing it. Uh, they then taught new believers in the word, built them up and moved on to a new territory. That's what they did. Um, So number two is evangelists. Number three was pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. Um, That word pastor means shepherd. He has given us, one of the gifts that he has given to us is shepherds. Um, Pastor Tom the pastors in our church Justin we are given pastors and teachers uh, Teachers has to do with the primary function of pastors so one thing that I struggle with is uh, See people say to me and say oh you're preaching today. I Don't view myself as a preacher. Okay, so I don't like I'm a construction worker. All right, that's what I, I am, and I'm, I'm a husband, you know? But somebody would say, hey, you're preaching. I'm like, <gasps> I'm, not a, I'm not a preacher. I, I, I so appreciate that I've been given the opportunity to teach here in our church, but really teaching I, in, in a sense of the word, if you are in leadership, you, if you are in service, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you are functioning in some way and exercising your gift in some way of service to the body and whether it be teaching or whatever, or, uh, you know, whether it be cooking food or stacking chairs, 10 high straight, um, whatever your service is, that's what God is doing through you, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the body of Christ. So when I read this, I was like, ah, I'm not, but you know what, the Lord has allowed me to teach. Now, I'm not one, I'm not Pastor Tom, I'm not an elder, I'm not that, this is talking more about what they do and the blessings that God gives to us through them. Now, we're blessed by every service that's provided in the church, whether somebody's stacking chairs, me personally blessed by that, or somebody making food, which I'm personally blessed by that as well. But, but this is talking about those that are shepherding, teaching, leading, guiding. Um, that's what they're doing. Um, like Cody, that's what Cody is Aspiring to and going towards right now through in ministry That's what he is going to and towards a pastor and a teacher leader a shepherd Um got that is when we have those those are a blessing and a gift that God has given to us And they're to be treated in such a way Cody's like amen Um so he has given to us teachers and pastors Um now we're to part two so you can write down part two so part one was the giving of gifts part two is for the purpose of building the body of Christ for the purpose of building the body of Christ a is God's plan for the body of Christ God's plan for the body of Christ any successful Sports team, sports franchise has got a plan. Any successful business has a plan. They've got plans, goals, they set goals and they execute them. Paul's laying out and saying, this is the work that God has done in Jesus Christ. Here's the gifts that he's giving and here's the plan for the body of Christ. This is what he's doing. This is is how he's working in verse 12. It says, "For he's given all these gifts Apostles and prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In the simplest possible terms, Paul here sets forth God's plan for his church, equipping to serve to build up. Those are the things that the church does. So number one is equipping. Equipping. The first task within God's design for the evangelists and pastors and teachers is the equipping of the saints. This is a gift that God is giving to us as believers. We are being equipped, we are being built up, we are being grown up, we are being equipped. The evangelist's work is to bring men and women to an understanding of the gospel uh, of salvation, to lead them to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and to become spiritual children of his family, of God's divine family. Uh, in the early years, the objective was to establish a local church. This begins with uh, this begins the equipping that was being talked about. The pastor teacher's work then is to provide the spiritual and uh, le- to provide the leadership and spiritual resources to cause believers to be taking on the likeness of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of pastors and teachers to equip us to take on that likeness of Jesus Christ in our words, in our actions, in our thinking, in our goals, in everything that we do, in the way we teach and train our children, in the way that we spend our time. That's the purpose. So number one is equipping. Number two is service. The second aspect of God's plan for the uh, church is that of service. Pardon me. Paul's language indicates that it is not the gifted men who have the most direct responsibility to do the work of service. God gives pastors and teachers. We have pastors, uh, we have staff here, we have elders, but they cannot do everything that needs to be done. Um, We have service that is, and functions within the church that are done by hundreds and hundreds of people. Pastor Tom can't play the piano and do all the singing. I don't know, maybe he can. I don't know, the guy can do most everything he wants to do. But he can't do everything. He can't lead the music. He can't clean the auditorium. He can't stack the chairs. He can't make all the food. He can't uh, greet all the people. He can't handle all the finances. He can't handle purchasing land. He can't, there's other people. We, acts of service is what God has given to us and what the purpose that he has given these gifts so that we can be equipped to be in the likeness of Jesus Christ and that we can be exercising these gifts in service. That's what we're to do. The entire church is to be aggressively involved in the work of the Lord. Number three is building up. Building up. So number one was equipping, number two was service, number three is building up. The third element uh, and the immediate goal of God's plan for the church is for it to be being built up. Proper equipping by evangelists and pastors and teachers leading to the proper service by the congregation results inevitably in the building up of the body. So when you start a business and you, like I'm in construction, So I've been a part of starting businesses and and doing things like that. So you set a game plan and you begin to, the first thing you do is you get all your equipment, you get your computers, you get your software, you get your everything. And then what you do is you begin to serve. I begin to bid work, I begin to pursue work. I'm trying to land work. And then once you've done that, you begin to land work. Now you're building a business. Now you're growing a business. You're getting work in. And you're executing it. Now it grows and it grows and it grows. Hopefully, that's the goal. The same thing is true in the church. As we are equipping, as pastors and teachers are equipping and growing and discipling into the likeness of Christ and believers are serving one another, what happens? It builds up. It grows up, and that's what Jesus Christ is doing is he is growing his church. He is building his church, and it all starts with his giving the gifts of himself. It's an amazing concept in what he's done and what he is doing, and that he allows us to be involved in it, that we get to participate in him building his church. Building up literally refers to building of a house. Um, It's the spiritual edification and development of the church of which Paul is speaking about here. The body is built up externally through evangelism as more and more believers are added. But the emphasis here is on it being built up internally as all believers are nurtured to fruitful service through his word. That's what's being talked about here. So A... Was God's plan for the body of Christ? B is the purpose of God's plan for the body of Christ. The purpose of God's plan. Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. The building up of the redeemed involves kind of a twofold ultimate objective, which Paul identifies as the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Those are the two things. So number one is the unity of the faith. The ultimate spiritual target for the church begins with the unity of the faith. The faith is the content of the gospel uh, in its most complete form. As the church at Corinth clearly illustrated, disunity in the church comes from doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity. That's why in our church, having sound doctrine taught is so important and is emphasized, and is focused on, and you go, why are we doing this? It's because it's laying a strong foundation for the believers in this room. If you have a strong, firm foundation, that structure will stand. If you do not have a strong foundation, that structure will not stand. When believers are taught properly taught when they faithfully do the work of service and when the body is therefore built up in spiritual maturity in a unity of faith, uh, that unity of faith is a result that will come. But it has to be based on sound doctrine. Oneness and fellowship is impossible without that sound doctrine together. Um, So that was number one, uh, unity of faith. Number two is knowledge of Christ knowledge of Christ the second result of knowing uh, following God's plan or pattern for building his church is attaining the knowledge of the Son of God Paul is not talking about salvation knowledge but about the deep knowledge full knowledge that is correct and accurate through the relation through a relationship with Christ that comes only from prayer and faithful study of, of and obedience to God's Word that's what he's talking about the knowledge that we grow in of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and emulating him in our words, thoughts, attitudes, actions. That's what he's talking about. After years of devoted apostleship, Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, he says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my lord for whom i have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that i may gain christ that's the attitude and the mindset that's being talked about here it's the value of knowing christ jesus my lord that's the attitude that he had and that he portrayed in in, uh, philippians 3 8 Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have the knowledge of him, knowledge of Jesus Christ. Growing in the deeper knowledge of the Son of God is a lifelong process that will be complete only at our deaths. That's something that we are to aspire to and to grow towards. So, number two was the knowledge of Christ. Number three is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. This is the third result of following God's plan or pattern for his church. It's... uh, a maturity to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I was actually nervous about this because they use the word measure a lot. Um, I grew up saying measure, M-A-Y-S-U-R-E. And uh, so I have to think about it every time I say measure and say M-E-A instead of M-A-Y. So you've caught me a couple of times I've gone like, (laughs) Measure. <laughs> so, but there's a measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's spiritual maturity that comes through these gifts that are given to us. God's great desire for his church is that every believer without exception come to be like his son. That's the goal, that we be like his son. And that's what we're encouraging each other towards Every day, every time we get together, when you get into your small groups, it's to be encouraging each other to become more like Christ. That's the goal, to be praying that for each other, to be challenging that for each other. Not who can have the highest set of standards or the biggest set of standards or the one that's furthest away from the cliff. That's not the goal. It's to be encouraging each other, whether you're standing right, whether you're at this level or you're at this level, is to become more like Christ. And you know what? None of us are there. And we will not attain that until death, but we're to be striving for that because of the gifts that God has given to us and he's empowered us with, starting with the apostles and the prophets have given us his word. We have pastors and the teachers and evangelists, all those things. So spiritual maturity, number four is sound doctrine. The fourth result of knowing God's pattern for his church is sound doctrine the christian who is properly equipped and mature is no longer a child who is tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by the craftiness in deceitful scheming that's what satan is trying to do he's trying to he's trick he, he's trying to use trickery craftiness scheming to change our mindsets and to have us a, give us a perspective that is distorted and opposite of the truth of god's word and we could spend An entire lesson on just this portion of the passage but we don't have time but when but the gifts that God has given give us sound doctrine they give us the ability to have that and number five is authentic loving testimony when it talks about speaking the truth in love when we've experienced what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, when we've experienced that and it has changed our hearts and our minds and we're striving to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we're exercising the gifts that he's given to us in service and we're being trained in, our, in doctrine and the truth of God's word, we should be a vessel of just merely speaking the truth of God's word of what we're grounded in to those around us whether it be speaking the truth about salvation, or whether it be speaking the truth in contradiction to uh, God's word that's being presented as truth in the world, whatever it is, we are to speak the truth and we're, have that testimony. God has built a testimony in us that we are to exercise and share with those around us for the edification of the body, for the growing of the body, for the equipping of the saints, for the testimony of Jesus Christ to those that are not saved. We unfortunately have to close. There's so much good material here. Spend time in this passage, read it, continue to understand it, and pray that God would lead you and guide you and help you to know because the goal that we have is Christlikeness. That's the goal, that's what we're striving for. because it says in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's our goal, to be like Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the gifts that you pour out on us, starting with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that you loved us when we were not lovable, when it was unmerited, you poured out your grace on us. We thank you, Father, that you did that for us. I pray if there's any here that do not know you, that have not come to a saving knowledge of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that are holding on uh, to their own eternity in their own hands, thinking that their good works or their actions or their attitudes will save them. I pray, Father, that you'd bring them to the end of themselves, that they would help, you would help them to understand that their only hope is trusting in you, in the form of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be with us the remainder of this day, that you'd bless our time of worship and fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.